Let's pray. O merciful and gracious God, we thank you that you, in your infinite love towards sinners, towards your infinite love towards us, that you have become to us in the person of Christ a friend of sinners, one who is the lover of our souls, one who gives himself utterly and completely for us, so that we, sinful men and women, women who are often failing, men who are often forgetful, young men and old alike, we have all fallen short of your glory. We all have not played the friend to you. As you have been good to us, Lord, oftentimes we repay your grandeur and your goodness for mere praise upon our lips, but not in our hearts. Oh, Father, forgive us. Forgive us where we do not have that friendly disposition of soul and spirit when we think of you. Forgive us that we often neglect you, as indeed you are our friend. Oh, Father, help us to commune with you in true happiness and delight. And Lord, as we give ourselves to communion with you, as our souls are fed in the delight of who you are as a friend to sinners, as the one who is the lover of our souls, may we gather around together, taking arms with one another, and build friendships in the bond of the peace that is the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that you have given us this church, this band of brothers, this holy, holy group of saints, that brothers can link arms together, that we can share bread with one another, that we can swing sweet praises together, and that we can encourage one another in the happy walk that we have before you. And we can walk together along the way, and as we are led by your kind and gentle hand as a shepherd leads his sheep. Lord, as we are gathered together here today, tonight, we thank you that you have given us a fellowship. We thank you that you have bonded us in such a way that only those who are in Christ Jesus can truly experience the joy and fellowship of what it means to be in Christ and joined together with one another by the Spirit. And Father, we pray now for those who are uh, our brothers and sisters within this church, those who are in need of physical needs. Think of Miss uh, Jane Wynn in particular with her eyes. Lord, we do ask that you would help her in her, in her infirmity, that you would be with her, that you would guide her and direct her, that you would uh, be an aid from those who visit her, especially her grandchildren, even her, her sons as they tend to her. Lord, we do ask that you would give her relief, that you would uh, help her to, to persevere through this trial, and that whatever physical mal uh, malady comes to her, that she would be able to suffer well 
knowing that she had a wise and providential hand behind it. Father, we pray that we can be a benefit for not only her, but for many others who are in need, uh, spiritually and physically. We pray that uh, you would continue to bring visitors our way, that those who have come even this very day, what a good report, a joy it is that we can hear of other saints gathering together, of maybe those who are lost and wandering, that they are finding their way back to the sheepfold. Father, we pray that as they see the fellowship of this church, as they hear of the gospel that unites us in Christ, Lord, as they see the beauty and glory of your restored humanity here, even within these walls, that they would be strangely and warmly drawn in heart and affection for your people. And as they see this people, this otherworldly people, May they be uh, strangely and warmly drawn to you, O Father. Father, there's so many blessings that we can give, so many things in which we can rejoice in. Father, we simply content ourselves knowing that you are a friend to sinners. And because we have you, we are united together in a common friendship with one another. And we do indeed, Father. A fellowship. Father, please be with us now as we hear your word. Help this holy brotherhood, this holy sisterhood, come together to receive the words of our elder brother Christ, and that we might listen to the voice of our Father, and so that we are led by his spirit, by his ways, not our own. Father, please be with us now and bless the reading of your word. Amen. Today we'll be in Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. Again, we are just simply continuing on in our exposition of Exodus. And uh, Dirk handled for us last time the various aspects of the temple court. Or, excuse me, the tabernacle court. And now we're in the very center of this tabernacle reading in which we get the details and the garment descriptions of the priest. And so we'll read Exodus chapter 28 for our main text tonight. So then Exodus chapter 28. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with, spirit, with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. They are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and of fine twine linen, skillfully worked, and shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece in it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other. In an order of their birth. 
As a jeweler engraves signet, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in the settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And you shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold, twisted like cord, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. You shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardis, topaz, and carbuncle shall be its first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chain like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the, of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edge of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in the front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold, and put them on the two ends of the breastpiece, on the inside edge next to the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces on the ephod, as it seem above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the priest shall not come loose, so the, that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart, where he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart. And when he goes in before the Lord, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. You shall make an opening for the head in the middle of it, with a woven binding around with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and around its hem, with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound like shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold engrave on it, like the engraving of the signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten to it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on the forehead, and they, that they, meaning Israel, may be accepted before the Lord." You shall weave the coat and checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, 
and you shall make a sash embroidered, embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall set on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. And you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Have you ever been underdressed for a special occasion? As a young man, I remember going into a country club to meet a friend for lunch, but I was not aware of a dress status. As soon as I opened the door, I thought I was going to have to turn back and go get uh, my sports jacket or something. Thankfully, I had an inside friend who greeted me at the door. He pulled out a glove jacket for me to wear. And so with my inside friend being prepared, I, I personally was saved the embarrassment of looking like a fool. And I was able to enjoy table at this country club, quite good food. I was even able to enjoy a round of golf. It was a good day. Our passage today is in the very center of God's description of the tabernacle. Verses 1 to 5 introduces us to the high priest's uniform. As priests, Aaron and his lineage would wear this ornate clothing that would be crafted along with the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the sacred house where God resided among Israel. But Israel still needed a high priest adorned in the tabernacle uniform to bring them into God's house. And like Israel, we are all outsiders needing another from the inside to draw us near, to let us in, so that we can draw near to God. And so this is what I want us to see from our text tonight. You, dear brothers and sisters, can draw near to God because we have such a high priest in Christ. You can draw near to God because we have such a high priest in Jesus Christ. In our passage, there are five items of the high priest's uniform that show us what our Christ does for us. These five things are that he represents, he rules, he reflects, he reconciles, and he restores. He represents, he rules, he reflects, he reconciles, and he he restores. So for our first point, we can draw near to God because we have a priest who represents. Verses 6 to 14 detail the high priest's ephod. Now, if you're anything like me, I had to go look up what an ephod even meant. The ephod was this type of full torso apron. It was the most outermost garment. And being the outermost garment, it would have been the most noticeable of clothing. If you saw someone with the ephod... 
you immediately think of them assuming a priestly role, such as David dancing before the ark with an ephod, or the child Samuel at Shiloh wearing the ephod. Verses 6 to 8 describe this ephod in great detail for us. It had two shoulder straps so that this full apron was very tight-fitting. It was made out of the same materials used in the curtain walls of the tabernacle. It was made of gold and blue, purple and scarlet and fine twine linen. So there was no mistaking that the priest who wore this ephod belonged in God's house. He was a servant at God's house. But verses 9 to 14 highlights another party that the high priest would serve, the covenant people. The ephod would have two onyx stones engraved with the twelve tribes of Israel's names on them. And these stones would be set in gold on the ephod shoulder straps as these decorative and beautiful shoulder pieces. Notice how verses 12 to 13 describes them. Look there with me. These two two stones are stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before their Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. The language of bearing their name describes Aaron's role as Israel's representative. When Aaron comes before the Lord, bearing Israel's name on his shoulder is a reminder of the covenant between Yahweh and his people. So though the high priest serves God's house, he also serves God's people, first and foremost, as their representative. Without a holy representative in God's house to bear their name, Israel had no hope in themselves to draw near. Like all mankind, Israel was marred by sin. They were strangers approaching God's dwelling place, doomed to be cast out. But in God's grace, he supplies a covenant representative to bear his people's name before him. And so what we should see is that they had an inside man who acts as a surety that God will remember his people and his covenant promises. They could draw near because their inside man was pleading their case. How much more is this true for us in Christ Jesus, brothers? As our representative, the Son of God bore our names in His sufferings and death and His resurrection and ascension. By believing in this gospel, brothers and sisters, you believe that Jesus bore your names in the grave and going out of it. And your Christ now bears your name before your Heavenly Father forever. And so, we have this precious promise in Christ. If anyone does sin, when we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. Brothers and sisters, we must go through Christ, our advocate and representative, to commune with our God. But for some, the idea that we need a representative in the first place is offensive. It offends their sense of self-worth. It offends their idea that God should be immediately approachable, right? Who needs this middleman? I want a God that I can just immediately go to. 
But such thinking fails to see the grace and what God has done for us in Jesus. Remember, the priest is pictured as an inside man. He already belongs to God's house. But yet God supplies him, the priest, for his people. Brothers and sisters, do we have a mere attendant in God's house? Do we have a mere attendant to come and help us? In Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters, the very Son of God comes to advocate on your behalf. The inapproachable God Himself comes to you in Christ, bearing your name, bringing you into the fullness of divine life. Christ is no middleman to God. He is our direct access. Rather, Christ's work as our advocate is to show that our sins will not nullify God's desire to commune with us. That is what we are supposed to see here as Christ's advocate and representative. It is to show that our sins will not nullify God's desire to commune with us. It does not matter how worthless you may feel. It does not matter what you subjectively think of yourselves, brothers and sisters. God's desire to commune with you is not based upon your perceived sense of guilt or shame. It is based upon Christ's work as our holy representative. So, brothers and sisters, Christ's advocacy is for our benefit, not God's. The father is not some cruel father-in-law figure. He doesn't look at you with a skeptical eye across the dinner table. He doesn't just accept you because his son happens to have his arm around you. No. Such thinking, such thinking is, is of a heretical and disgusting distortion of who the father is. The father is not some mad tyrant just waiting to consume you with holy wrath just because Jesus has his arm around you? No. Our Father, the master of the heavenly domain, sent his only begotten Son, the eternally begotten Son, his own. He sent his own for this very reason that we, Sinners would draw near to Him, to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. So, brothers and sisters, let this be an encouragement to you. And maybe just a subtle reminder of what kind of God you serve. Or rather, what kind of God serves you. If you are in Christ you can draw near to God without the fear of sin stain. And you can draw near to God with the full assurance of the triune God's love for you. If you are in Christ, it is because the Father sent Christ to be your representative.
that he might bear your name before him forevermore. It is not merely so that the Father can just deal with our sins. That he's just folded up in heaven with his hands crossed, just waiting. Oh yes, let's see how long this will wait. Let's see how long this relationship will pan out. No. We have a far more beautiful gospel than that. We have a Father who sends his Son to redeem his bride. Not to chide his Son for the bride that he's present. Oh, we have such a better picture than that. And that is who we have in the Son. A Father-sent representative to bear our name before His Father. So then, the ephod illustrates the priestly work of representation. Building upon the ephod is the next garment, the breastpiece. Which brings us to our second point. We can draw near to God because we have a priest who rules. We have a priest who rules. In verses 15 to 30, the breastpiece worth the urine and thumim illustrates the priest's rule over Israel with God's will. When most people think of the high priest's wardrobe, they often have that scene from Indiana Jones, right? You have that guy who's like bare-chested and he's doing this weird mantra or whatever and he has like the uh, it's, uh, this bedazzled little medallion on top. It's very weird. It's kind of gross. Just my opinion. And what we should see is, is that Indiana Jones gets it wrong. The breast piece was a piece of cloth made from the same material as the ephod. It was basically a folded napkin or a hand towel that was a, a square pouch that laid on top of the, breast piece, uh, the priest's chest. No bigger than a napkin, really. It was bedazzled on one side with 12 precious stones, each representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The breastpiece was to be tightly sewn and fashioned to the ephod, uh, both by the top portion and the bottom at the band. So it was attached to the, sh- so, uh, the shoulder pieces as well. And so what we should see here is that the breastpiece was tightly connected to the ephod, both literally and figuratively. The 12 stones in the breastpiece function similarly as the ephod's shoulder pieces. In verse 29, the breastpiece basically states how the priests would bear the names of Israel again as a covenant representative. But notice how the breastpiece of judgment stands out. Notice, that's what it's called. It's called the breastpiece of judgment. Inside this folded napkin, inside this pouch, were the urine and the thumim. The urim and the thumim. Now, we have really no clue what these things were. Our best guess likely were that they were two stones, possibly acting as some form of dice or lots. We see that they were used to discern the will of God in leading Israel. For example, in 1 Samuel 14, Saul seeks to know who was guilty in his party and he, does, he tries to discern this through the Urim and the Thummim. He would ask a specific question. If it's this option, show Urim. If it's another option, show Thummim. Also, when David was worried about a possible threat on the horizon, he told Abiathar, the priest, to go get his ephod with the Urim and the Thummim. And so when the kings or the people needed to discern God's will, 
to discern his judgment to their particular circumstances, they came to the priest. As verse 30 states, Aaron would literally bear the judgment of Israel on his heart, his chest, before the Lord regularly. He wore the means by which Israel and her kings could know the will and word of God in their times of trouble and in their difficult circumstances. And so with the breastpiece of judgment, the priest would become synonymous with God's will for Israel. The priest would become synonymous with God's will for Israel. By them, kings would rule the people in true judgment and wisdom. And I think the best example of this is King Solomon. In his narratives, Solomon takes on this semi-priestly characteristic, this role. In 1 Kings 3, Solomon must decide between two women on who was the true mother of a child. We all know this story. And after he sorts out the problem quite um, interestingly, we could say, we read this. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to execute judgment as the Levitical priests would do with the Urim and the Thummim. So brothers and sisters, what we see here is that the priest were the very representation of God's will for his people. And through the priest, Israel would be ruled well. But we have a far better king and priest in Christ Jesus. We should draw near because Christ rules us perfectly. Far better than we can rule ourselves. Trying to discern your path is often an exercise in futility. Trying to discern your own path in this life is oftentimes an exercise in futility. Should I move here? Should I move there? Should I stay? Should I pursue that job? Should I change a career? Should I seek that relationship? Or maybe you're trying to get advice on a very particular issue. It's very close to your heart. Some gray area behind it. This brother says this is best, or that brother disagrees. And all you just keep asking is, what, what is best for me? What, what does God want for me? What's best for me and my family? Of course, brothers, sin and willful ignorance and foolish thinking are not excusable to just write off this important task to discern the will of God. Uh, it doesn't matter how I live. No, that, that's ridiculous. We know that. But in decisions where Scripture doesn't speak directly, we can often slip into the mentality that we are letting down the Lord if we possibly make a bad call. Let me say that again. When it comes to these difficult decisions where Scripture does not directly speak, and sometimes in our zeal to want to please the Lord perfectly, not wanting to make a mistake, we can often slip into the mentality that we will fail the Lord if we possibly might make a bad call that we use for judgment. 
that our judgment call ended up being a lot worse than we realized. We punish ourselves ultimately because we are not omniscient. I must admit, discerning God's will through the urine and the thuming sounds far better than trying to figure it out for ourselves, doesn't it? Right? But the urine and the thuming were not some sanctified Ouija board. It was given so that Israel would learn to lean upon the Lord's revealed ways, not their own understanding. And for this same reason, God has sent us Christ Jesus. God has spoken to us finally and completely, sufficiently in Jesus. Hebrews 1. As kings depended upon their priests, we are to depend on Christ Jesus to give us wisdom and lead us in right judgment by His Word and Spirit. And it's by this design that we learn dependence upon Christ's perfect rule. In your Christian walk, you will make crucial decisions, brothers and sisters. You will have some tough calls to make. But in your limited knowledge or discernment, you will fail. How about that? In your limited scope of understanding, who would have thunk it? You might just fail. You might mess up. You might make a poor judgment. But the good news is that Jesus still rules whether you are right or wrong. He rules over your life whether in your good decisions or bad. And so for you anxious souls here, let's be honest, we're all anxious about the life's meandering path. Let this sink into your hearts. Christ's perfect rule gives you freedom to not be perfect in every decision. Christ's perfect rule gives you the freedom to not be perfect in every decision. Doesn't that make you want to take a nice, deep breath? Sometimes we make mistakes, and not because we are simply repressing the truth. No. Sometimes we make mistakes because even the best of men are men at best. When you find that you have erred in your decisions, take a moment and breathe easy. Seek the Lord for further discernment and wisdom. Pray, but don't lose heart. It is by design that in your failures that you learn to lean upon Christ. That is the great joy of being just a mere man. Is that we realize that it's not all up to us. Sometimes simply, humbly, and faithfully going where Christ will lead us. And where we make a mistake, we turn. Where we fail, pick ourselves up again. Where we just need to take a quick moment to cry, we do that, get on with our lives. Why? Why can we do that so simply? Because we have a Christ who rules us perfectly. It is by design that in your failures that you would learn to lean upon Jesus.
Only the high priest was given the breast piece. It was not given to all Israel. They had to learn dependence upon their high priest. And dear brothers and sisters, as hard as it is to admit this, we must do the same. Moving on. The ephod with the breast piece was the outermost layer of the priest's uniform. But now we come to the third item. The high priestly robe, which would have been the uh, most prominent of the wardrobe. And now we come to our third point. And so we can draw near to God because we have a priest who reflects. We have a priest who reflects. In verses 31 to 35, the priestly robe reflects Adam's original role in the garden and what Adam was was supposed to achieve. For this first point, I want us to see how the priest reflects two realities that Adam lost. First, Adam lost Eden. As many note, the tabernacle's design uses Edenic images of trees and cherubim. Uh, Dirt brought this out a good bit. And the precious stones and materials evoke allusions to Genesis 2. The Garden of Eden was a garden temple of sorts. And this is reflected in the tabernacle's design. And likewise, the high priestly robe shared in this imagery with decorative little pomegranates around and embroidered in the hem. It was very fashionable. And so the idea is that the priest gains back Adam's original role in the garden. That's the idea communicated with this robe. But second, Adam lost heaven, right? When God appeared to Moses, Moses saw a heavenly temple of sorts. And it was this temple design that is, that is patterned after Exodus 25. But remember back to when Seth preached for us, when they were at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, God revealed his heavenly presence to Moses and the 70 elders. And look back there with me, Exodus 24, verse 9. Take note of what they saw. Verse 9. These elders and Moses, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. Very strange way to depict it, but this is what we should see. The idea is that Moses saw the literal dome of heaven. Moses saw the literal dome of heaven with Yahweh on top and his feet touching the pavement above. And so, and this dome, as we look up in the day sky, was deep blue because it was made of sapphire. And so this was a deep blue clear dome. And possibly the, 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 the robe, it was all made of blue except around the embroidery. Unlike every other piece, unlike the ephod and breast piece, the robe was all blue. And possibly... This, the robe suggests that the priest belonged to God's heavenly domain. He belonged on the other side of the dome, so to speak. And this would be something that Adam failed to achieve for himself. So there's both Edenic and heavenly imagery surrounding the high priest. But catch this little detail. There were bells all around the tabernacle coat, right? 
Verse 35 tells us that when the high priest ministers, the bell's sound may be heard when he enters the holy place before Yahweh and when he comes out. And why is that? He is to be heard by these bells. Why? So that he may not die. Like any faithful servant, the priest would make himself known before the king in his chamber. And so this imagery has a lot of moving parts. So allow me to suggest and just clear up what I'm trying to to get at. In his Edenic imagery, the priest reflected Adam in the garden. He stands as a faithful steward on God's holy mountain because he does not die because he is before his God always. But the heavenly imagery reflected what Adam failed to do, rather what he failed to achieve. By Adam's perfect obedience in the garden, he could have earned everlasting Sabbath rest and received his heavenly inheritance. Through his service to King Yahweh, Adam could have brought heaven on earth. And so the high priestly robe reflects what Adam could have been. Unlike Adam in his sin, the priest does not hide from the presence of God. Rather, the robe reflects his uncorrupted, heavenly, and perfected status that the priestly Adam failed to achieve. All of this in a robe. Brothers and sisters, imagine an Israelite beholding their high priest. In that priest, they would have a restored hope of what Adam lost for them. But we have a high priest that does more than merely reflect what Adam could have been. We have a high priest that has truly done what Adam failed to do. As we see there in Hebrews, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a servant, a minister, In the holy places as a priest. In the true tent that the Lord hath set up, not man. Christ Jesus is the second Adam who has secured our rest and inheritance through his perfect obedience in God's heavenly tabernacle. In Christ, we are assured of a righteous and accepted status before God. Free from the guilt and shame of Adam's failure. In Christ, we have the hope of resurrection in the new heavens and new earth, free from Adam's corruption and curse. Brothers and sisters, we have all of that in the person of Jesus. We have renewed and restored humanity What Adam failed in giving us, Christ has secured for us. And so, brothers and sisters, behold your Christ. Behold your Christ. Behold your Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything that we fail to be and that everything that we long for. There may be some here today, children, please, please listen. There may be some of you today who doubt our Christ. They may doubt that he is all that important. They may doubt that his ability to deliver on his promises. They simply do not believe the hype, so to speak. 
They may appreciate our Christianity for helping us get by in life. But they say, you know, that, that, that's good for you. But it's not really for me. But what Christ, but this Christ is what your soul needs most of all. For those who do not believe, for those who doubt, this Christ is what you need most of all. If you do not take hold of Christ, it's because you are placing your hope upon empty idols. Who here believes this? You think that you can find peace and happiness through meeting your physical needs, your immediate needs. As long as I have enough money in the account, I'm good, Hal. Your hope may be placed upon a simple life, free from stress. You may dream of an honorable career, a happy family, and simply a legacy to be remembered by. All good things, right? Good things that we should enjoy and should endeavor to have. But dear soul, if that's it, if your life is all about just having a decent life now, you place your hope in things that will all fade away like grass. Your life is a vapor. If you build your life and joy upon the transient things of this earth, you will forfeit your immortal soul to the things that will bring you no joy and no peace in the life to come. Adam believed this lie of Satan, this very lie that tempts you so now. He took the fruit that promised temporary delights. But by believing that lie, he doomed his eternal soul. As was the man of dust, so goes all those who are of the dust. Dear soul, do not believe the false promises of this life. They promise an empty hope. But the promise and hope of Christ is eternal and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So think about the things above where Christ is. Through a living faith in Christ, you can draw near to God. Eternal rest and peace are found in Him alone. Though we deserve, all of us, to fade away with this world and its empty promises, Christ provides the hope of heaven for you. Though we have borne the image of the man of dust, yet through faith in Christ, we have the hope that we too will bear the image of the man of heaven. Christ is our only hope, dear soul. So may we all take hold of him by faith, because this world promises us nothing. Though it glitters like gold, it is full. Christ offers you something so much rich and valuable. Gold and fleeting things of this world. He offers you himself. 
He offers you restored humanity. He offers you heavenly and and heavenly inheritance for you. Take hold of Christ and let go of those false promises of Satan. So then the robe was the largest main garment that would have brought the entire uniform together. But the next item, the golden plate, may have been the smallest item, but it was the loudest. This brings us to our fourth point. Draw near to God because we have a priest who reconciles. In verses 36 to 38, the golden plate speaks directly to the priest's status and work. In verses 36, Moses is given the design of a small golden plate, really a placard. It would have been a similar size to what we would see on a modern-day trophy. Elsewhere, this plate is called a holy crown. As verse 37 states, this golden plate would be joined on top of a turban, a more ornate headpiece that was given to uh, the high priest. Engraved on it are the words, Holy to the Lord, giving the, the high priest a unique status. This shows how the priest was to be set apart from the rest of Israel and the other priests for his unique work. In verse 38, we see what this work would be. Read with me. Verse 38, Aaron shall lift up the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel have set apart according to all their holy gifts. And the golden plate shall be on his forehead continually to find favor for them, the people, before the Lord. And his work has three aspects. First, he is a representative of the people again, who will present Israel's holy gifts to the Lord. And this is ultimately the idea of him uh, referring to the offerings and sacrifices that he would give to the Lord on behalf of the people. Second, the high priest is responsible for Israel's sins. He was to lift up literally to bear the iniquity of Israel's offerings. And third, the end goal of his work was reconciliation. Israel's sin were an offense before their holy God. They were unable to approach them in their sins. We know this. But through the priestly work of bearing guilt in atone and through the atoning sacrificial system, Israel could be accepted by Yahweh. Israel could draw near to God because their priest's golden golden plate shouted that he could reconcile them. Is that through the priest, they could hear the benediction of Yahweh. So, the high priest presents the people before the Lord. He is responsible for their sins. And through his work, reconciles them to God, securing their favor. Now that is a lot to put upon the shoulders of just one man, is it not? Imagine being responsible for a host of people, but more so being responsible for for their sins before the holy God, and more so to be the one that was supposed to reconcile them to this holy God. That's a lot to place on one man. I'm sure when Aaron first heard this, he trembled a bit. 
How could he, a sinner himself, bear and atone the sins of his people? This, brothers and sisters, is one of the greatest problems with the earthly priesthood. But that is why God gives us a better hope by which we can draw through. He gives us a better priesthood. If you would, please turn with me to Hebrews 7. Please turn to Hebrews 7. Verse 25. In this passage, God makes an oath that Jesus would be made a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The earthly priesthood were subject to death, but Christ's priesthood would be unending, continuing forever, because He continued forever. And as we read there in verse 25, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest like Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no lead like those high priests like Aaron, who offers sacrifices daily, first for his own, and then for, those, for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Simply put, Jesus is a guarantor of a better covenant based upon better promises. Unlike the earthly priests, there is no doubt that Jesus can actually do what he promises he will do. Jesus can deliver on his promise. But brothers and sisters, I do not care how confident or bold your faith is. At some point in your walk, you will be tempted to ask whether Jesus is enough for you to get to God. I don't care how bold of faith you have. I do not care your status in this church. At some point in your Christian walk, you will question. To place your acceptance before God solely upon another is completely unnatural to us. It's completely unnatural. We want to guarantee that Jesus can do what he actually says that he will do. We want something more than what he has to offer. And how often does this fear drive us to second-guess our Lord? Is he actually enough? Is he worthy enough? Can he really do it? Now you may puff your chest at me and, uh, with this smart-aleck retort. Of course, preacher. You, didn't you just say that Jesus is our only hope? Oh, well, blessed soul, I'm so glad that you're confident. But let me ask you this. What was your immediate response? Your immediate response when you had last sinned grievously? When you last blew it, when you failed the Lord or that you right out disobeyed him, when you last sinned grievously, what did you immediately do? In our, fin, uh, in our folly, we don't like often to think about the minor sins, even though they are grievous before our Lord. So let's go with the big sins now. Let's think about the real, last time you really blew it. Think with me when you last lost your temper. 
Maybe with your spouse or your children. You took a step too far. Or what are the thoughts that filled your mind when you last thought of that insufferable neighbor or that coworker? How did you respond when the guilt of what you said or did or thought came over you? What happen, happens when that, that guilt, that shame comes? Or what did you do after you may have lingered just a bit too long over an inappropriate image on the internet? What did you do when the sense of shame and filth came over you? You're saying, how quick are you to fly to Jesus to find forgiveness? How often do many of us doubt? All of us doubt. Let's be honest. Let's be brutally honest with one another. When you realize your sin, you often try to clean yourself up first before you go back to Jesus. You're too ashamed and burning to take it immediately to your high priest. Uh, Just let me cover this up. Let me figure this out. Let's have some time pass. Even though you know he is your only hope, you still fear that condemnation. You still have that guilt, the embarrassment, the shame. Rather than confess it plainly to Christ, you try to bury it. Forget it, right? Often with a vain promise to do better. Dear saints, you cannot bury the stench of your sin beneath a mountain of good works. Sin has a way coming out even against the holiest so-called of saints. No matter what, your sin must be dealt with. And dear saint, you will drive yourself mad trying to deal with it yourself. That is why Christ has come to us as the high priest of the good things to come. Not of the old way of trying to deal with it on your own. By his blood, Christ has secured our eternal redemption and reconciliation. That's it. By his blood, eternal forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation. Eternal. Unending. Unfading. Incorruptible. Christ offered Himself without blemish to God. And so He can purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Dear saints, oh, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters, listen. Stop pounding the sand in futility when it comes to your sin. Stop inserting yourself where Jesus stands for you. Stop hiding and flogging yourself because of your sins. Rather, simply repent. Bring your sins to the one who is able to make you clean and give you peace with God. Oh, brothers and sisters. You have the gospel. You have a savior. You have a high priest 
who stands ready to save to the uttermost and draw all those who come to him in true repentance and faith. Why is it that we try to clean ourselves up first? Exercise in futility. Go to your Christ and you can find reconciliation. You can find the peace and joy of the Lord. And you, even in the darkest moments of sin, simply confess that to the Lord. And though you might be pained with guilt and shame, brothers and sisters, as you confess that grievous sin before the Lord, you can know because of Christ, God's favor will never depart from you. Why? Because your Christ has done his work. So then, the golden plate shouted what the high priest came to do for his people. But moving to the remaining items, we see the final priestly garments that would be shared among all the saints. Uh, rather, all the priests. So for, our, for, so for our final point, we can draw near to God because we have a priest who restores in verses 39 to 43, the other priests are given holy clothing that is shared with the high priest. In verse 39, there are three remaining items that the high priest would wear as undergarments. He is given a tunic that was worn under the robe and ephod. And this tunic would have a sash that would act as a girdle under the robe. There is also the turban that the gold plate would be placed upon. And these garments in verse 39 were for the high priest alone. But notice in verse 40 that we see the other priests would have tunics and sashes made for them, similar to the high priest. They would also have caps similar but distinct from the high priest's turban. Though the regular priest's clothing uh, were less ornate, notice how the Lord describes them. He says that they were for glory and for beauty, just as the high priestly garbs were. In verse 41, the regular priests would be anointed or ordained in the tunic, sashes, and caps. This clothing would, be set, would set them apart from Israel as holy servants. Verses 42 and 43 are a, uh, are a final piece of the priest's uniform. They were linens to cover the loins of the priest. They were given this particular item so that they would not accidentally expose themselves before the Lord and incur guilt and die. Exposing bare flesh has already been prohibited in the law. And so by providing this garment, the Lord was ensuring that the priest would remain holy and accepted before the Lord. And so by virtue of their natural union, Aaron's, Aaron's sons shared in the same privileges and responsibilities as Aaron. Though they were not high priests themselves they were still given an extraordinary honor and status to serve before the Lord continually. And this is the exact same relationship that exists between Christ and His church. Peter says this about the church. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As those spiritually united to Christ, we share in all of his benefits. 
all that Christ is, so to, be, so to speak, we become. His holy and righteous status becomes ours. Like Adam, we were meant to be priests, but sin took that away. But Christ, through his work, restores our status as God's holy priesthood. And so, brothers and sisters, think about how Paul describes us in 2 Corinthians 5. If you would, turn there with me. It will be the last place that we go. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 to 21. We'll end here. In this passage, we see how Paul describes the church. But everything that we see Christ do for us in Exodus 28, we see Paul called the Corinthians too. For example, first, we have seen that Christ is our representative. Paul calls himself an ambassador for Christ. And we likewise have the same honor of showing the world who Christ is as our representative before God. As ambassadors, we get to show others our representative, our advocate. We have seen also that Christ rules us by his word. We are to depend on his word. Paul says that God makes his appeal through us through the message or word of reconciliation. So we are simply to depend on the gospel message to do its work, and we leave the results to the Lord. And so we have both a liberating and honorable work. We have the joyous and holy calling, holy calling to tell others of Jesus, but we can also rest easy knowing that God will bless that work as he sees fit. What a wonderful motivation for evangelism. The fact that we still have this holy calling placed upon us, but we know that God will do his work in it as he sees fit. And so we have both an impetus, because it is a good and joyous calling to tell others about Jesus, but also we can rest easy because God is going to do what God wants to do. Third, we see that Christ perfectly reflects what Adam was supposed to be. What does Paul say about us? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Brothers and sisters, the newness of life that Christ provides us gives us a greater hope than anything else that this fading world has to offer. And so we can serve the Lord by giving starving sinners the same hope of new life found in Jesus. Brothers, sisters, you'll get to tell others that there's something more to this world than what they see. You get to tell them about the one, the one who is coming to make all things new. And fourth, we see that Christ reconciles us to God. God has given us the message of reconciliation. He does not count our sins against us. And so we can be accepted and reconciled to our God. And so for those who are under the weight and burden of sin, for those with the sting of a guilty conscience, we restore priests can show the world our Christ. We can give them that same gospel we so desperately need ourselves. We can show them the Christ who says to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, there are those outside in the lost dark world who still are trying to get good with God through a worthless gospel. But we have the glorious joy of making known the Christ who is gentle and lowly, who says, come to me, those who labor and we have the joy of giving them our joy. We have the joy of showing Christ who can give them rest. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, this work becomes our joy because these promises are true of our own souls. We have been restored and garbed in Christ's garments of righteousness. We stand before our God holy and accepted because Christ is worthy, not us. In our friend Jesus, we have our friend to clothe us, to wrap his arms around us and lead us to the Heavenly Father's throne. Brothers and sisters, he is my friend at the beginning. He is in heaven waiting at the door for you. And he has prepared you. He's prepared. For those who are weak and tired of this thing, come through the door. Take hold of Christ. Rest his reconciliation. Indeed, as the hymn goes, what a friend we have in Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, O oh, lover of our soul, we thank you that you represent that you represent us before the triune God, that you restore us and give us the hope that Adam failed. Lord, we thank you that you rule us with your word, that we might learn dependence upon you and you alone. And Lord, may we depend upon you as we live before you in true reconciliation. Oh, Father, help us not to believe the lies of Satan and false promises of this world, but help us to take hold of the precious promises of Christ. Help us to savor and delight in the knowledge that heaven is open to us, that our Christ is there waiting for us. Oh, Father, may we be so heavenly minded that indeed we are a very much earthly people. We ask this in holy and perfect name. Amen.